You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Hey, Aaron. You went kind of high there. Podcast. Uh, I have I have a lot of range uh, for a <laughs> podcaster. You do have a lot of range. Uh, uh, which which part of your range did you go into uh, into this week for this? This week episode? is an episode I'm very excited about. So excited, in fact, I've been lobbying to uh, cut it forward in the line um, because it's quite timely. Uh, it's with Masha Gessen, who is an incredible reporter who's been um, working out of Russia for most of her career, but is back in New York. She has a new book out called The Brothers, which is about the Tsarnaev brothers. We taped this just before the. Um, Death penalty verdict came out, but uh, lots of interesting stuff there. She did the book very quickly, and that brought up a lot of pretty interesting stuff. I don't want to uh, throw out any spoilers, but she has a uh, pretty interesting theory about those guys. Well, I wouldn't say that she has one interesting theory. I would say that she has poked a lot of holes in many of the the official theories about about it. And and she really, I mean, she she did interviewing um, all over uh, Central Asia. I mean, the the sources the sourcing on the books are really amazing. So I highly recommend the book and this interview. <laughs> all right. What <laughs> about sponsors? Uh, sponsors. We got a couple of sponsors. If you need some new clothes and you don't want to go shopping like me, maybe you should check out Trunk Club. It's pretty simple. They send you a trunk full of clothes based on the indications you give their stylist about what you like, what size you wear. You check those clothes out, send back the ones you don't like, keep the ones you do. The whole thing, the stylist, the shopping, the trunk, even the shipping are 100% free if you go to trunkclub.com slash longform. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about it uh, in the middle of the show. The only thing worse than uh, shopping for clothes, shopping for a mattress. The worst. It's like uh, buying a car. It's an awful, awful experience. Everything costs like eight times more than you think it should. Uh, If you want to avoid that experience, the next time you need a mattress, go to casper.com slash longform. They will send a mattress, a top-of-the-line, fantastic mattress, to your house. No going to the mattress store. And if you use the code longform, you get 50 bucks off. Hey. And then once you have your mattress, you're sitting on your nice mattress, wearing all of your new clothes. You want to get some of your ideas out into the world, then you get a tiny letter. Yeah. You start a newsletter, you use tiny letter, they're sponsoring the show. We thank them. From the good people at MailChimp, <laughs> tiny letters here. <laughs> Here's Aaron, Masha Gessen. 
Welcome, Masha Gasson. I have been a fan of your writing for some time, but I literally just, I would say, 10 minutes ago finished your book. It's wow, exactly <laughs> uh, exactly fresh on my mind. And um, for our listeners, the book is The Brothers, which is about the Tsarnaev brothers, actually really the whole Tsarnaev family. And I actually wanted to start with the postscript to the book in which you said um, the greatest difficulty you had in reporting the book was fear. And um, the thing that was the most striking to me in, in reading the book was how many people you had gotten to talk to you, particularly outside the country in Dagestan and Chechnya. Um, so I'm, I'm interested, like, when you start from that being your greatest challenge in reporting, like, how, how do you get people who are fearful to talk to you? Well, actually, I didn't realize it was going to be the greatest challenge. Uh, I, I knew that I was working against sort of the, one of the biggest problems that reporters encounter or book writers encounter, which is when you write about something that has drawn a lot of media attention, then inevitably there are lots and lots of people who've suddenly found themselves in the limelight. You know, they're not used to being public people. They often feel like they've said too much or they said things that they didn't want to say or they've been shown in a light that they didn't expect to be shown in. And so people get burned by media attention. It's it's not at all the same as dealing with sort of people who are naive to media or right. or people who are experienced in, in dealing with journalists. It's the worst, really. It, it's not a phobia. It's a real a real issue. It, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I mean, the, the media lens is distorting. Distortion is disturbing, and 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 people are right to to be disturbed by it. Yes. And most of us don't have a desire to be public. That's actually, I think, healthy, although strange to me, but healthy. Yeah. So, uh, so that you know, I knew I was dealing with that. What I didn't realize was how much fear uh, people were going to feel for other reasons. Right. So, so obviously there was the fear that the family felt to jeopardize. Uh, Jahar Tsarnaev, the younger brother, the surviving bomber, the younger brother, who was going to face trial in Boston. And they clearly had been told not just by the defense team, but also by the FBI that they would be, he would be in big trouble if, uh, if they talked to me. The same went for a lot of friends uh, and, and sort of more remote family. But also uh, the larger Chechen community in Boston, I mean, it's not very large, but, uh, but people who weren't immediate associates, they were really harassed by the FBI. And that, that was something that came as a surprise to me. I didn't realize that that was going to face that problem. And it's people. a relatively small community. It's half a dozen families, and then yeah. there are people who know those families, right? So the FBI cast a very wide net in that sense. Uh, you know, it didn't cast a wide net in other directions, which is bizarre, and we can talk about that later. But, um, but those people, you know, they really face harassment, and those people feel like they're in a very precarious position in this country anyway. And they have had you know, a lifetime of horrible experiences with law enforcement. So all of that sort of piled together made it a very difficult reporting situation. When you approach someone who has sort of a justifiable fear, what do you say as to like, why, you know, why should I do this if, if I'm afraid? You know, you obviously inevitably end up in this manipulative situation where you're trying to get somebody to talk to you. And even when I say things that I absolutely believe to be true, which is, look, you know, I want to tell the human story. I want people to be able to see these bombers as human beings, which is not to say that I'm going to justify what they did. But, you know, I do think it's essential that, uh, that, that, that we see people who do things and who do horrible things as human beings. Because if we see them as you know, less than human and more than human simultaneously, which is what we normally do, we're not ever going to figure out what the problem is and why it happens and how to deal with it. So even when I say that, 
I feel like a horrible manipulator who, right. you know, who's trying to get people to do what they don't want to do. But mostly I just try to be very open and communicate what I'm going to do and where I'm coming from and why I'm interested in the story and wait. And probably the biggest single factor is time. You just have to wait to give people enough time to to get used to the idea, to get used to me, to maybe learn enough about me. I and mean, there was one source that I spent, oh, you know, months courting and then months more talking to in very sort of small portions as this person felt comfortable sending me information. So we weren't meeting in person. They were they were sending me stuff uh, through the mail as they saw fit. Uh, and it so happened that I never asked a question because questions were inappropriate in that exchange. I, I, I thanked the person for, for, for sending me the information. I communicated some of my ideas that were going to go into the book. And then I waited. There's one exchange in the book where you're talking, I think it's in Grozny, to a commander in uh, uh, the Chechenian fighting force. And he sort of reels through all of the possible conclusions that you could draw about Tamerlan Tsarnaev's motivation. He was radicalized. He was this. He was that. And he says, like, you can't accept the basic idea that he was against U.S. foreign policy. And I think that in this story particularly, people are sort of waiting for you to jump to one of the preset conclusions. How do you say, I'm not doing that? I'm, I have not decided my conclusion yet to someone you're interviewing. Uh, well, you say that. They obviously won't believe you. Uh, <laughs> um, I think honesty is... In some ways, it's disarming. Uh, it's also the only possible uh, strategy. Also, in a situation like that, when it can be risky, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, the conversation you're describing was actually in Dagestan, which is next door to Chechnya, and uh, yeah, that's a place where people get kidnapped and, and disappeared and get into all sorts of trouble. It's not a place where you ever want to be caught lying, uh, and that's that's something I learned a long time ago. Uh, working in war zones, you just you just have to be really honest and, and make sure if you're hiding something, it has to be something that is completely undiscoverable by anybody uh, whom you're going to encounter there. So that conversation, though, it was really, in a way, it, it was eye-opening, which is why it's in the book. Uh, and it was eye-opening in, uh, in a weird way, because I had gone into the book having spent time you know, studying terrorism, uh, and, and I'd, I'd, I'd covered a lot of terrorist attacks, but I'd also spent a year at Harvard soon after 9-11 when terrorism studies were briefly all the rage, and so I was in a Neiman Fellowship, and I think half of our group was 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 was, was taking courses in terrorism, so I was too. Obviously, I was you know I had I was fresh from covering the war in Chechnya at the time, and and one of the worst terrorist attacks in in Russia, the uh, theater siege in 2002. So I knew that what he was saying was right. And in fact, when I went into reporting the book, I remembered that uh, Professor Louise Richardson was uh, had had been saying to us, "Look, you know, one of the uh, distinguishing characteristics of terrorists is their normalcy, and their rationality, and the choice to uh, to 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 engage in a terrorist attack is rational in that frame of reference. Uh, and if you want to study it, you have to." to understand the frame of reference, which is exactly what Magamed Gajiv, my interlocutor in Dagestan, was saying, was why can't you accept that in his frame of reference, his objections to the uh, U.S. foreign policy actually meant that he was justified 
in, in staging a terrorist attack in Boston? Why can't I accept that? Why do I have to find childhood trauma or you know radicalization or sinister forces or whatever it, it, it was that he perceived me as looking for? But if you sort of take that off the table, take off, you know, I'm going to find things in my his childhood, I'm going to sort of construct this portrait, you take the why off of the table. And there's another big hole, which is the how. We don't know where the bombs were built. There's there's a, these really giant holes in the narrative. And I assume that you knew that those were there when you started working on the book, and some of them might have gotten filled by information that came out later, but I'm guessing you can't rely on, while I'm working on this book, there's going to be an amazing revelation for you. So how did you... How did you go about reporting a book that you knew had this gaping hole in the center of it? Well, actually, I thought of it as a book about the hole. I thought, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe the shape of the hole. I mean, you're absolutely right. I ended up describing the, sh- the shapes of two holes. Yeah. The shape of one hole is why did these men uh, do what they, what they did? And um, I don't want people to come away thinking that, that the book uh, doesn't offer a story, because I think it does offer a story. It's yeah. just that it's an ordinary story. Mm-hmm. And and I knew it was going to end up being an ordinary story. Uh, I knew enough, I think, about not just terrorism. I mean, I'm not an expert, right? But I, I spent time thinking about it, and I spent time writing about it, and I spent time studying it. So I knew I knew enough about that to be extremely skeptical of, of, of the standard narrative. And I also knew enough about immigration to kind of have a very visceral sense of, of how things go off the rails. And these things are very closely related, and, and, that's, and that's really what, what, what the story is about. I didn't realize I was going to, when I set out to write the book, I didn't realize I was going to spend so much time describing the shape of the other hole, which is the how. I thought that was actually going to come out. I thought that, um, that it was going to come out during the trial or before the trial in various investigations that were published, right? Because uh, when, when I started writing, uh, reporting the book, the congressional investigation hadn't been completed yet. I hadn't realized it was going to be a joke. Uh, the last congressional investigation of a terrorist attack was the 9-11 report, you know, which is one of the best books ever written. Yeah. And then the, the, this Congress the, spent three days in Russia and published a, an investigation that uh, contained less information that was publicly available in the, in, you know, in the media at the time. And because Congress hasn't held the FBI accountable, the FBI hasn't accounted. And um, and there are huge holes in that story. So I didn't realize I was going to be describing those holes as well. But um, but I think the first part of the book is really about the whole, uh, the whole and the why, as you said. And the, and the second half of the book is about the whole and the how. Did who you were able to talk to end up dictating the, the narrative of the book? Like, I'm interested in sort of what you saw before you started doing the interviews what you saw that you were going to be able to get and not be able to get. Jahar was probably not, seems clearly not going to be able to get. Um, But you have these um, sort of side narratives that I think were really fascinating of Jahar's roommates on one side and also Ibrahim Tadashov, who was the Chechenian who may or may not have been involved with a triple homicide with Timerland. Were those things that you knew that you wanted to be in the book from the beginning? Yes. I knew uh, that Ibrahim Tadashev was going to be in the book because... Uh, so Ibrahim Tadashev was the Chechen uh, martial arts fighter in in Florida who was killed by an FBI agent during an interview in May 2013. So that's just, just over a month after the bombing. 
Supposedly, at the time that he was killed, he was uh, he had been writing a, a confession about the triple murder in Waltham, Massachusetts, that he supposedly committed together with Tom Lansarnaev. Weirdly, nearly uh, two years later, that investigation hasn't been completed. Uh, sort of. The Massachusetts State Police hasn't said anything about, or the Massachusetts DA hasn't said anything about settling on Tarmalan Sarnayev as a suspect. It's a story, it's kind of a dead-end story, and of course it dead-ended with Tadashev's killing. But it so happened, um, my first six months or so of reporting this book were basically a story of uh, grief and frustration uh, <laughs> and total despair. I thought, you know, I'm not going to get any information at all. At this and, point, you already and, had a contract to do the book. Of course, I already had a contract, <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know, how am I going to tell them that I just, like, failed to yeah. to get one scrap of information? But um, the only thing that happened in the first few months that was sort of a, a stroke of luck was that the first time I flew to Chechnya to interview one of the Tsarnaev's relatives an uncle, I ended up on the plane uh, with Tadashev's body, and I ended up landing there and sort of being able to witness not all of the funeral, because women and, and outsiders aren't allowed there, and I certainly did not want to intrude, but I sort of was, was on the outskirts of those events enough to be able to describe them actually in great yeah. detail. For the uh, reason you said that, I pictured you like on a hill with like a cost, you know, like <laughs> in disguise watching the funeral. Um, not exactly. I was actually at a cafe, you know, waiting for them to like come back from the funeral. And that's, uh, Did you know that you were them. on the plane with his body? I knew when I was at the airport and I was texting the relative who was waiting for me on the other side and he said, oh, Tadashev, the father, is actually flying with you. He's bringing the body. And that was by chance that you were booked that on that. That was by chance, book. yeah. I'm, I want to talk about conspiracy theories and, and how they interplay with the book at some point, but this is how conspiracy theories get started. Like, the person writing the book was on the plane with the body. Um, uh, she must have known, yes. <laughs> but but it's, it get, it's actually worse than you think, because um, cause I was booked on a flight the day before. I was going to drive myself to the train station and then take the train to the airport, but I was late for the train, so I, d- I used my GPS to get myself to the airport and I was going to leave my car at the airport and the GPS took me to the wrong place. So I missed my flight the day before and by virtue of missing my flight I ended up on the flight with the body. Yeah. So clearly conspiracy. Someone was manipulating your GPS exactly. from, from afar. Hey, this is your host Aaron with a quick word from our sponsor Trunk Club. Uh, If you look great, you'll probably feel better. And the way to look great is to get new clothes. But sometimes that can be a hassle. Trunk Club takes out that hassle. Here's what they do. You go to their website, which is trunkclub.com slash longform if you want to support this show. Uh, You tell them a little bit about what you like to wear, what size, what style. They assign you a stylist who picks out some great clothes for you, puts them in a trunk, and mails them to you. You try them on. Keep the ones you like, mail back the ones you don't. The next trunk you get will be even better because they'll know more about what you like. It's a great system. The clothes are awesome. Uh, I went to their showroom, which is, uh, they have showrooms in a few cities, tried on some stuff, ended up going home with some pants that I really like. I will be using it again. So the stylist, the shopping, the trunk, even the shipping are all 100% free when you go to trunkclub.com slash longform. It's the easiest way to refresh your wardrobe this spring and can become a part of your shopping life for years to come. Great clothes handpicked for you, Trunk Club. Thank you, Trunk Club. Our next sponsor is Casper. 
Casper is a great way to buy a mattress online, cutting the totally crappy showroom out of the deal completely. They'll mail you a mattress. It comes in this box that doesn't seem like it would fit a mattress. Max got one. Uh, you open it up. You can try it for 100 days with no obligation. You can send it back for your full refund. But if you do like it, which you're going to, you're going to have paid way less than you would have at a showroom where mattresses can easily go for over $1,500. Casper's mattresses are $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. This is a high-quality, American-made mattress. They have a proprietary style that's I guess a hybrid mattress that's part premium latex foam and part memory foam. It's got a great bounce to it. Um, and additionally, you don't have to go and try it for two minutes and decide whether you like it. You can actually sleep on it, live with it, feel out whether it's the right mattress for you, keep it if you like it. If not, send it back. I want you to go to casper.com slash longform. You'll be supporting the show and get $50 off any mattress you pick out. $50 off. Great deal. Thank you for the sponsorship, Casper. Here I am back with Masha Guest. How long after the bombing did you decide that you were going to write about this? So the bombing happened on April 15th, and um, and they were identified on the night of, the, of April 19th, uh, 18th, uh, the morning of April 19th. So... Uh, that day, on the 19th, Friday, I got a phone call from my best friend, actually my, my, my oldest friend, someone I've known all my life, who was also an, a Russian-speaking immigrant in, in Boston. And she said, I have to talk to you. And I said, I'm busy because I was actually covering the, uh, the manhunt. I was in Moscow, but I was director of the Russian service for Radio Liberty, so it was my job to coordinate the, 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 the coverage. And she said, well, call me back. And uh, three days later, she called me again. And she said, you're not calling me back, but this is really important. So I'm calling you again. You have to drop everything and write a book about the Sarnaya brothers. And I said, oh, okay. Because the moment she said it, it was obvious. Yes. That I'd been created to write the story because I'd, you know, I'd covered both wars in Chechnya. I'd covered a lot of terrorism. I'd studied terrorism. And I'd been a Russian-speaking immigrant in Boston, which actually I think is the most important qualification uh, for, for writing this book. Um, just not so much Boston, but 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 the immigrant experience and yeah. the experience of a, of a Russian-speaking kid immigrant in, in America, which doesn't give me special knowledge, but gives me a lot of questions that yes. I know to ask that other people wouldn't know to ask. It puts you in a very small group of people who have sort of the Venn diagram that overlaps in, in these ways with the story. Exactly. So um, so after that, I you know I called my agent 15 minutes later, and uh, I wrote a proposal that night. And a few days later, it was confirmed that I was writing the book. So it was really fast, and I had nothing to do with originally conceiving it. Did you kind of think about when you started this book, where is this story going to be when I have to drop off this book? Well, originally, I thought I was going to uh, to be able to write the epilogue about the guilt phase of the trial, and then it would come out around sentencing. We didn't count on 108 inches of snow in Boston this past winter, which delayed the start of the trial. Right. Which is why uh, I actually stopped writing right at the time that the trial was about to get underway, which was terrifying because what if something had come out during the trial that right. I didn't know? But nothing did, which is good for the book, bad for justice, but, or, yeah. or bad for truth, rather. Do you think that um, additional things will come out that will cause you to need to revise the book or, or will date it in any way? Not in the course of the trial. Uh, I mean, 
you know, the American justice system is not uh, designed to, to get at, at the truth, which is not a problem with the American justice system. That's just, like, not its purpose. Uh, you know, the French justice system is designed to get at the truth. They conduct investigations, judges summon uh, witnesses, etc. That's not what American courts do. American courts listen to two stories, and then they apportion guilt and, and assign punishment. So when both sides are content to tell stories that are that have huge holes in the middle, you're not going to get anything out of a trial. And that's what usually happens. That's the norm, right? So the agency responsible for giving us the truth is the FBI. The body responsible for holding the FBI accountable would be Congress, I guess, um, hasn't exactly stepped up to the plate. So unless civilian agencies hold law enforcement accountable, we're not going to get more information. So we're not going to figure out the two biggest questions about, uh, about the story, which is that we don't know where the bombs were made, and we don't know what happened between the FBI and Tamerlan and Sarnayev. The question of not knowing where the bombs were made, there's not even any, uh, seems to be a working theory of it. It's just a total... Right. Well, the, the, the FBI testified at the trial that they still don't know where the bombs were made. Right. They said they weren't made at Jahar Sarnayev's dorm room. They weren't made in Tamerlan Sarnayev's apartment. So that obviously raises the question of whether there was anybody else involved. There may have been someone unwittingly involved, right? Someone who owned a garage where Tamerlan Sarnayev may have built a bomb. Or there may have been someone who knowingly participated. Right. In fact, the bombs were complicated. There are also a lot of them. I mean, they built three pressure cooker bombs, four pipe bombs, a food container bomb. Uh, if they used fireworks to build those bombs and they started buying fireworks at the end of February, and Jahar was on campus and Tarmalan was babysitting his daughter, it's really difficult to even conceive of the physical time that they would have had to make all those bombs with, uh, you know, gunpowder from tiny little fireworks. Uh, it's like uh, one person estimated, I, I can't experiment with this, right, but one person estimated that, uh, that they would have needed more than 700,000 fireworks to actually make these bombs. I don't know how accurate this is, and this is actually an interesting problem with reporting this book because I seriously considered building a bomb because I was uh, talking to people and I was talking to explosive experts in this country and outside the country, and people would tell me, those things are too complicated. And I would say, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the instructions and Insight Magazine, which is an online magazine supposedely published by Al-Qaeda, um, and the instructions seem pretty straightforward. Yeah, they're kind of um, anarchist cookbook-like yeah, instructions. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's exactly the style in which it's written. It's called, the recipe is called How to Build a Bomb in the in the Kitchen of Your Mom. And, um, and then these people would say to me, no, it's complicated. You really would not be able to pull this off in your mom's kitchen. And then the FBI expert testifies, not very complicated. They could have done it at home. The only way to, to figure that out is to build a bomb right. in your own kitchen, uh, which I thought about doing and decided not to do. <laughs> so the minute you start, I'm not going to say answering, but the minute you start to speculate on these questions or even to sort of propose possible solutions, you start to edge towards conspiracy, right? Oh, yeah. Anytime you fill a hole that's not filled with evidence, it has some of that air. And I would say that the relationship of the book to conspiracy theory sort of ranges. You, you list them in the book, but you also come to the conclusion and 
uh, please correct me if I'm mistaking your that there is a significant possibility that Tamerlan had some relationship with the FBI that has not been made public. Right. Well, in fact, I would say it's a fact that yeah. he had some relationship some, with the FBI. He was right? interviewed by the FBI. I mean, he yeah. was. Uh, so this, this, the known facts are that in 2011. Uh, the Russian security services alerted the FBI to his existence and said that they believed he had become, quote-unquote, radicalized. Yes. The FBI sent field agents to interview Tamerlan Tsarnaev on at least three occasions. I was told by people who were there, and the defense has alleged, that at least during the second interview, the FBI tried to recruit him as an informant. Uh, in fact, that would make perfect sense. I mean, they should have tried to recruit him as an informant. He fits the profile of the people that the FBI go for, goes for perfectly. He is a bilingual Muslim young man, sort of part of a Muslim community in Boston, but not fully integrated, exactly the kind of person that they would go for, yes. right? So, in fact, as Senator Chuck Grassley has pointed out, if they didn't try to recruit him, why not? That calls for an explanation. Sure. But, you know, we pretty much know that they tried to recruit him. And then we don't know what happens, right? What we do know is that then he manages to leave for Dagestan for six months, come back. Uh, That's not in itself uh, an issue, except that somebody who has political asylum in this country uh, who doesn't yet have his passport is ill-advised to go to the country of origin where he says he is facing persecution. But lots of people do that. Uh, usually they're not on the FBI's watch list at the same time, but still, fact is lots of people do that, so, you know, whatever, he did it. But, and then he comes back and builds a bomb and sets it off at the largest public gathering in Boston, carrying out the largest terrorist attack in this country since 9-11, within two years of having been fingered as a terrorism risk. So, on the face of it, he had a relationship with the FBI that went awry. Now, what the nature of that relationship was, what the details of that relationship were, and when did it go awry? We don't know. It, uh, I'm willing to believe that it is a case of pure and total incompetence. Most things are, right? So, so they tried to recruit him. Maybe they thought they had hooked him a little bit, but they let him out of their sight, and he went and built, built a bomb. Right. It's horrible. It's the sort of thing they should be held accountable for, but it is conceivable. Is something sin- more sinister conceivable? Yes. I'm not asserting that it happened. Um, you know, what we do know is that people, uh, the conspiracy theories flower wherever there's a conspicuous lack of information. And there's a conspicuous lack of information about what happened between the time that the FBI first interviewed him and the bombs going off. I have to admit, I you kind of like, I kind of gasped when you, when you said that in the book, when you kind of just like after sort of saying, here are all the theories. And then you say, it seems likely that he was in some way either an FBI informant or that the FBI was involved in this plot. I was like, whoa, I didn't think the book was, I, I didn't think you were going to dance so close to the edge of the hole. Was that a difficult decision? And, and did you worry that the book becomes part of conspiracy, like becomes regarded as conspiracy theory? I didn't worry about it too much. I worried about, I mean, once I wrote it, um, I don't think I say that it, uh, that it's likely that the FBI was involved oh. in the plot. I do say that um, uh, I, what I do say is that it's like the oldest story in terrorism is people who have significant relationships with secret services who then go rogue 
Mm-hmm. I mean, so many uh, of the cases in terrorism, that, even recent ones that I've covered, you know, where we haven't had a lot of time to go through all the details. But even the things that have come out of Chechnya in the last dozen years, you know, at least a couple of them have clear connections to the Russian secret services, which doesn't mean the Russian secret services organized them, right? right? But it's the oldest story in the book when the secret service uh, encourages or or even funds a terrorist cell or a terrorist person or a terrorist organization, and that cell person or organization goes rogue. And in the case of American terrorism cases, which this was the most shocking statement in the entire book to me, of all of the arrests for terrorism in America over the last decade, this is hundreds of arrests. Um, there's only four documented cases where there was not a FBI sting involved with it, which is kind of makes you think, well, if this is one of the four, the odds are strongly in the favor of uh, Singh. And I watched that um, the story of that Newberg uh, right. sting, which is just the most egregious and and fumbly and the Newberg thing is the mo- uh, yeah it's probably the most tragic of them all. That's where we have a federal judge in Manhattan actually saying that the FBI created a yes. terrorist out of a man whose buffoonery she says was truly Shakespearean in scope, and then she sentenced the man to twenty seven years in prison right. under mandatory sentencing guidelines. So. Um, the the figures that I cite, uh, you know, they're not mine. I mean, I no. just took a Human Rights Watch report right. that is public and that is extremely well documented. I mean, their research uh, methods are, are really r- rigorous. Uh, so what they show is that they, they examined terrorism prosecutions. There are currently about 500 people serving time for terrorism-related crimes in about 40 cases. That's, this is all post-9-11. They came to the conclusion that in all but four cases... FBI sting operations, often verging on entrapment or being entrapment, were were the cause uh, of the of that arrest. They don't say that all of those cases were as horrible as the Newburgh Four. Right. Uh, they don't say that you know everywhere they go, they uh, they create terrorists out of uh, people who wouldn't otherwise become terrorists. I'm not saying they're innocent, right? I'm just yep. saying they weren't uh, necessarily plotting to blow something up b- uh, before an FBI informant came along. But, you know, all of those cases sort of work according to the, to the same kind of script where the, an FBI informant supplies explosives, which are usually fake, and then there's a sting operation and, and, and the, the, the suspect is apprehended as he or she is about to set off the fake explosives. I'm pulling myself back from the brink of um, conspiracy here because I could just sit here for two hours and be like, but what? Um, the thing that kind of made this book a, like, you had to be the person, you had to do this book was your experience as an immigrant in Boston. So I'm I'm interested in, like, the story of how you came to America and how that led to you becoming a writer. I came to this country for the, for the first time yeah. uh, when I was 14 and my parents were... Um, refugees from the Soviet Union, so we're the, the typical Jewish refugee story, yes. like all the other Russian-American writers. We've had your brother on the podcast, so you can compare and contrast these two stories, but I think he was quite a bit uh, younger at this uh, juncture. He was six to <laughs> so, my 14. But uh, otherwise, you know, we came the same year with the same set of parents, <laughs> and, uh, um, and we settled in Boston, uh, and uh, and then I ended up coming to New York to, to, to go to college. And um, I wasn't planning to become a writer uh, and, and a journalist. In fact, I don't think my brother was planning to become a journalist. Um, we we both resisted because we are fifth-generation journalists. 
And so I went to architecture school, but between high school and college, I worked at a gay paper for a year, uh, for half a year, and uh, and I got completely hooked, uh, like on the feeling of of doing stories and reading stories what and was, having that, that come paper? out in print. It's called Bay, Bay Windows. I think it still exists, actually. Okay. But it was, it, at the time, it was the new gay paper in Boston. Oh, okay. Uh, this was at a period in journalism where Boston could have multiple gay papers. That's a, this is in a period when when cities generally had many papers, like had, you know, like there would be a couple of free urban weeklies sure. and uh, and a couple of gay papers and uh, and a couple of dailies. The uh, whole whole different time. So yeah. when you were working on the Sarnayev story, and you were thinking about yourself at these different junctures in their age, like how how did your experiences compare to theirs? Right. Uh, well, obviously, I didn't go on to, to, to build a bomb. So you uh, say. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. I decided not even to build it in my kitchen. Yeah. But um, um, so, I, you know, I don't want to, I, I want to make it clear that I wasn't transposing my no, experience no, I on that. But I think that there's some questions that I knew to ask that someone who hasn't been an immigrant probably doesn't know to ask. So I asked a lot of questions about about identity, because I do remember when I was um, when I was a high school student in Boston, at a good liberal high school, and everybody wanted me to tell them who I was. Uh, nobody wanted to understand who I was, but everybody wanted me to tell them who I was because that's you know that's part of um, what you do. That's part of socializing at an American high school, is to claim your identity. Sure, it's a pretty weird ritual for other cultures you know uh, I'm pretty sure Americans are the only people who do that right so you come you learn about that ritual and then you try to participate in it. and my first couple of hundred attempts were not very successful so I would say that I was from the Soviet Union and so the person would say so you're Russian and I'd say well no I if I were Russian we wouldn't have had to leave the Soviet Union the problem is I'm Jewish and so the person would assume that that meant that I was religious. And I would say, no, 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 I was like, I'm ethnically Jewish, which to Americans makes no sense, especially 35 years ago. So I would try to explain that I was ethnically Jewish, but I wasn't actually religiously Jewish. And so then the person would say, well, so you're a Soviet. And I would say, no, I'm anti-Soviet. Right, it was completely hopeless. Your logic there is exactly my logic in trying to not go to Hebrew school. <laughs> right. So, uh, so, um, so then I, I, I was very interested in how they negotiated that because by the time they got here, they actually had ridiculously complicated stories, and they weren't any one thing. Yeah. Uh, they were Chechen in a very essential sense that they, I mean, they were born Chechen, they were uh, brought up Chechen. Um, they had spent all of a year in Chechnya uh, in their entire lives. I mean, anyone in the family. That's part of being Chechen. Part of being Chechen is being permanently displaced, permanently disenfranchised, permanently outside the law uh, or, you know, on the wrong side of of the law. That's where the Soviet Union placed Chechens long before the Tsarnaya brothers were born. So how were were they going to negotiate that with themselves and with others when, when, when they got here? To my amazement, I discovered that Tamerlan you know, the older brother who whom we know as the the psychotic, radical, rigid one would tell people uh, that he's from Russia and, the, and that his name is Timberland like the shoe. He just couldn't be bothered explaining himself. Or you could interpret it as being incredibly easygoing and, and sort of not hung up on, on issues of, of identity. 
Jahar would say that he is a refugee from the war in Chechnya, which is sort of true in a larger cultural, spiritual sense. Technically, not true at all. Right. And then I, I interviewed other uh, young people their ages, and there was one boy who told me a story that that is almost identical to mine. He was, so I tell people that I'm from Chechnya, and they say, "So you're you're Russian?" And I say, "No, I'm not Russian. I'm Chechen. If I'd been Russian, I wouldn't have had to leave." And the, you know, and the whole thing. And it's like I, it's a very recognizable experience. And I knew to ask about it and to focus on that issue of of trying to figure out who you are and 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 where you belong because I've been through it. And after you um, spent this six months or so at this um, gay and lesbian paper, where was your identity going at this time? I know that at some point you moved back to Russia, at which point I think it, that sort of adds even like a further complicating layer on explaining who you are. Like when you arrived in Russia, how did you explain who, who you were to Russians? Well, that's the thing. So I um, I went back to Moscow. And part of the reason I went back to Moscow was you know, the first time I went was in March 91. So the Soviet Union still existed. And I went on assignment, partly because it was just easy to get an assignment to go to Moscow. Everybody wanted stories from there. Yeah. Um, Were so, you still a Soviet citizen? I, no, I was not. We were stripped of our Soviet citizenship when uh, we left. Okay. Uh, and I'd become an American citizen. I'd lived here just under 10 years when I first went back. And they allowed you to get a visa even as a strip? Or did they... I, just... I faked my own invitation. Oh. And, uh, how, 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 what does that entail? It entailed sending myself a fax in which I informed myself that I had received a telex. Wow. Because I looked at the invitations that people actually had, and that's what they looked like. They looked like faxes that said you've received a telex. So all you needed was like a piece of paper saying you had been invited to Russia. Right. It or was the USSR. Yeah, it was it was during that sort of transition time when institutions still existed, but they didn't work anymore. Right. So uh, when the fax machine was very convincing. Uh, fax machine and the word telex was magical. So, yeah. you know, putting those two things together was, uh, you know, made it official. I mean, was that dicey for you? Like, what if you showed up and someone was like, hey, this this is not real? I figured that the consulate wouldn't have given me a visa. Mm. So I thought there was a very good chance that they would just turn me away uh -huh. and not give me a visa. But after they gave me a visa, it was a perfectly valid visa. Right. I was also in my early 20s and right. reckless. Yes. Um, a lot more <laughs> reckless than I am now. Yes. So I wouldn't do that now, for the record. Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, but, um, but so you were, how long did you did you spend there on that first trip? Um, a few weeks. And, uh, and the thing is, that experience was really important because I went there thinking of myself as an American journalist who just happened to speak the language. And I was completely ambushed by what happened to me once I got there, which was that I ended up feeling so comfortable because everything about, you know, the way the light felt, the way that the dust smelled, the way that people talked, the texture uh, of everything was familiar in ways that I didn't realize I'd missed for 10 years. Were you still in contact with, like, kids that you had grown up with? No, I wasn't in contact with anybody. I really, I hadn't spoken Russian in years. I was, I was like the, the perfect integrated American. And I really, I didn't have a hint of nostalgia. And, um, and I don't think it was nostalgia that, that ultimately brought me back. I mean, it was an amazing story. But I was also ambushed by this feeling of, of home. And this was the other thing that I knew to ask uh, about Tamerlan Tsarnaev. And also I knew to ask other people. So I kind of went around uh, obsessively asking people who'd had the experience of going back to, um, to another country where they'd been children of what that felt like. 
and everybody described exactly the same thing that I experienced. I mean, there's something, uh, I guess, in the physical experience of going to the place where you were a child that is unexpectedly and, and, and shockingly comfortable. Mm. And I'm sure that that's what happened to Tamerlan when he went back to Dagestan, which, you know, even the FBI thinks that when he went back to Dagestan for six months, something happened, something that, that changed. And when he returned, is very soon after that, he started building a bomb. The FBI says, well, he went to Dagestan and got rag- radicalized by the radicals there. Not a convincing story at all. There is an insurgency there. If he wanted to join the insurgency, he could have joined the insurgency. There, there was also a huge recruitment effort for Syria going on there at the time. If he'd wanted to be a fighter, he could have gone to Syria. He sat around in cafes talking in Dagestan. Uh, he had a radical experience of belonging, mm. but he didn't. He wasn't radicalized in the sense that the FBI says that he was radicalized. And when you had that experience of of going to to Moscow and and sort of having this unexpected home feeling, did you just want to stay? Did you say, I'm like not going to get on the plane back? No, I did fall in love. And um, and I started going back and forth all the, all the time. And then about two, three years later, I realized that I should stop paying rent in the States. Yeah. And after I did that, you know, I, I, I started living there. And very soon after that, a, a young Russian journalist came to interview me because it was kind of a weird thing to do to move back to to Moscow in the early 90s when everybody was trying to leave. Uh, So he was doing a story just about that, about my deciding to come back. And he asked me this question. He asked, uh, are you more comfortable being an American in Russia or Russian in America? And I thought, what a horrible question to ask. You know, I'm an American in America and a Russian in Russia. Uh, And, you know, now I think he was absolutely right. And that's, uh, that's the advantage of being an immigrant is you you get to be an outsider everywhere, even mm-hmm. at home, which when you're young is is uncomfortable. When you get a little older, it's indispensable for a journalist. You always have a little bit of a side view on things. Uh, you 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 always can can bring something to to the conversation to the story. When you decided that that you needed to be there, and you also decided, hey, maybe I should be a journalist. Was your inclination towards writing for a Russian audience or an American audience at that point? Well, I started out writing for for um, American magazines, um, and actually, it's funny to think about now because I went there to um, I, I wanted to stay for a few years. I didn't realize it was going to be twenty years, uh, and uh, so I wanted to get a bureau job. But in the early '90s, getting a bureau job uh, with a mainstream American publication after having worked for the Gay Press was yeah. not something that was happening. Sure, um, you know, the first editor to come out at the New York Times did so in 1992. Uh, so they weren't hiring, you know, butchy, openly gay uh, reporters uh, in Moscow. I, I had interviews with a, with, a, with a bunch of viewers and no one would offer me a job. So I ended up writing, having this great magazine career that I probably wouldn't have had if somebody had been willing to, to hire me. How were you pitching uh, stories to American magazines from Moscow in By the facts. 90s? Facts. By okay. facts. And then, uh, and then email. I would like tell my editors, you have to get on the, this thing called email. It's yeah. really cool. Because I had email starting in 1991 because I was going back and forth to Russia. And so there was this closed email network called Savam Teleport. Mm. It cost an arm and a leg, but it allowed me to, to email with people in Moscow. So I was I was like converting people to email in the early 90s so I could stop sending them faxes. And what kind of stories were you were you doing from Russia? 
I was writing for the New Republic. I was writing for New Statesman in, in the UK. Um, so, you know, magazine and mm. analysis stories. I was writing for Wired uh, and for um, Lingua Franca, which was a great magazine that was happening at the time. So those were long, like right. five to 10,000 word uh, magazine stories about anything in the world. I think most people, you know, when they're developing as writers are writing about uh, their own culture, you know, a place that they know very well intimately. And, and you, in many ways, did know that about Russia. But what was it like, right, you know, developing as a writer while you were trying to explain a totally alien culture to an American audience? You know, I'd actually had a fair amount of journalism experience by the time oh, I went okay. back because I, I started writing for the gay press in the mid 80s. So, um, so I'd spent five uh, a good five years mm-hmm. writing about the AIDS crisis before I went back to Russia. And that was the heyday of the gay press. And uh, there were a lot of talented people working in the gay press. It was also that sense that what we were writing was in such high demand. Yeah. It was literally a matter of life and death, or it, or it seemed like it was literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. I'm not sure that any information we provided was actually a matter of life and death, but it felt that way. Uh, so there was, you know, there was a, there was a, this incredible drive, but also you had to figure things out that were unintelligible to a general audience, and you had to make them intelligible. And that was the conceit of the early AIDS journalism and early AIDS activism, mm. that we can get this information and actually process it and do something with it um, and and make it understandable to each other. So, you know, the, uh, there's a great documentary called How to Survive a Plague that actually shows that aspect of it really, really well. There was a, there was a small group inside of ACT UP called um, the Treatment Action Group, TAG, uh, which was non-medical people who self-educated uh, themselves in medicine and became equal interlocutors for all these people in the FDA and people cre- uh, designing clinical trials. And, and it shows you know, that process very clearly. The same thing was happening in, in, in the journalism and the, uh, in the gay press. And I was doing a lot of medical stories. I learned to, to read medical papers. And I learned to digest that and explain that and explain that as human stories. And I actually went back and did that um, again years later when I wrote a book about medical genetics. I sort of remembered that I'd been a, a medical reporter. And I remembered it be- when I discovered that I had a, a a deleterious mutation that predisposed me to, to breast and ovarian cancer. And I realized I, I am not processing the information. And then I thought, well, why am I not processing information? I, I used to be an AIDS reporter. I just need to put my reporting hat on instead of my patient hat on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my head will start working again, which it did. It worked. And, and I ended up writing a book about it, uh, about medical genetics in general, not just about my experience. I read a lot about you in your Wikipedia page. That book gets uh, no press. It's the strangest thing. It was a really badly published book. It got very little publicity, uh, although it had like a great review in the New York Times. And uh, it was a notable book uh, of the year, the New York Times notable book of the year. Um, it's m- absolutely my favorite book I've ever written. Interesting. Oh, uh, wow. Now I wish I read it. Because if you sort of, you, if you Google you, it's like Putin, Pussy Riot, Tsarnaev. Right. Like, right. it's a, it's a, and, and, and those books, I mean, those are probably the three biggest stories that touch on the f- former Soviet Union for Americans of the last year. I mean, you've um, you sort of gravitated towards the big ones. Was it hard as you wrote about Russia to say, I want to write about something that's not Putin, Pussy Riot, or Sinai, something that, that is sort of less known to Ameri- to an American audience? Well, like I said, I wrote about medical genetics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and, and that was a very personal experience. Yeah. Uh, 
before Putin, I actually, I actually wrote four books before before Putin. Uh, Blowing my mind here. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's quite right because uh, because Putin was the first book that really yeah. that really hit it big. So, um, uh, and those books were were much more uh, you know, much smaller stories. Although one of them is is huge in scope, but it's based on the stories of my two grandmothers. Ah. Uh, so uh, so it it kind of starts out as personal, and I think it was sold here as a, as, a, as a memoir actually, mm. uh, which it isn't. It's a story. It's the story of my, of, my, of my two grandmothers and uh, Hitler's war and Stalin's peace. And at some point you started working for a magazine, a Russian language magazine in Moscow. I did. So a couple of years into living in Moscow, I really felt like um, it would be much more interesting to write for people who actually knew what I was talking about, <laughs> rather than, as you pointed out, explaining constantly things that people didn't understand. And also, you know, it just seemed like Russian media were so exciting, exciting, and some yeah. people I knew were working there, and yeah, I sure. wasn't. Uh, and I wasn't working anywhere. I was you know, working at home, which is yeah. lonely. Yeah. Uh, so I went to a Russian magazine, and... Um, and I had this plan. Uh, I was a, an experienced journalist at that point, but I thought they could hire me like as a junior reporter, and then I would work with someone more senior, and I would really understand Russian politics if they hired me like uh, to report on politics as a junior reporter. And uh, and they they interviewed me, and they offered me a job as a senior uh, writer uh, on politics. And I thought, oh my God, I but I don't understand anything. And then uh, I went to my first editorial meeting and I realized that nobody understood anything, that there was nobody to learn from, that, uh, that you know, the whole field of electoral politics was completely new to everybody. In some ways, I knew a little bit more than others. Uh, I didn't know many of the personalities, but at least I had some framework for how to think about it. Does that mean that political reporting during the Soviet Union did not exist? Politics didn't exist, so political reporting wasn't very hot. Uh, it was, you know, it was the Central Committee and uh, yeah. uh, and its decrees, basically. Um, so there was no force of personality, and, and more importantly, there was no relationship between what they did up there and sort of what happened to us down here. The whole idea that 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 what happens in the political arena actually has an impact on people's lives is a profoundly democratic idea. Right, we just don't think of democracy as working that way. We usually think of uh, you know of the democratic mechanism as as the people influencing what happens in the political right. arena, right? Which is a very American way of thinking. I mean, it's a very like elementary school American sort of way uh, of seeing of politics. But so, how did you like how did you build that backwards as a political reporter with no nothing to build on? Well, once I realized that no one uh, knows anything, I, 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 just, <laughs> I just started writing stories. Um, yeah. And I figured, you know, the smaller you go, the less likely you are to, to, to make a huge mistake. I mean, if you describe people and tell their stories, well, yeah. how wrong can you be? And of course, that's not that's actually pretty different from what I do now, because like the Sarnaev book is, is mostly about context. Right. I mean, it's still a small story, but uh, but but it, there's a huge amount of context there that, of course, I didn't have when I was a young reporter in, in, in Russia. What did people think? Like, I mean, you described yourself as a butch lesbian during this period. Oh, butchy. Yeah. Butchy. butchy. <laughs> and um, you're also like part American mm -hmm. and uh, you're out like reporting on Russian political figures. Like how, how did people take you? Yeah. And I had a shaved head for part of that time. <laughs> so, um, 
when a new magazine was launching in, in Moscow in 1996, it was going to be a news weekly in partnership with, with Newsweek. Yeah. It was a really ambitious project. It was really a great magazine. And so I was on the founding staff there. And my first story was a story that I reported from Constitutional Court uh, on residence registration systems. And this was actually something that, that I, where I think you know, uh, my background was very useful because it didn't occur to the people at the magazine that the whole system of residence registration was bizarre and a complete Soviet anachronism. It occurred to me and it occurred to the people, to the lawyers who were taking the, the case to constitutional court. Once I wrote about it, it was very clear because you know, the, the people at the magazine were sort of in the same political camp as I was. They just hadn't lived in America. Uh, and, uh, and they took certain things for granted that were actually really strange. So... I went to the constitutional court to report on this trial, and then the the pilot issue of the magazine came out with that story uh, played really big, and the editor-in-chief went to the constitutional court to personally deliver uh, the, the, the copies of the magazine to the judges to sort of show that we're going to be a new major political magazine. And each of the judges would go, what was that? You know, because there was that weird creature in the courtroom taking notes, you know, with a shaved head, and uh, had somehow gotten accreditation uh, for this new magazine, so they knew I was affiliated with them. Fortunately, my editor found it very amusing. Yeah, I think for, in some ways it was a really good thing because I was so sort of strange that I actually didn't encounter any uh, any prejudice, and I certainly didn't encounter any homophobia. I mean, people had never thought of gay people until meeting me. Mm. So it was like, whatever, if I was the way I was, well, then they could choose not to deal with me or they could deal with me the way I was. I'm sort of thinking of the like signifiers of um, the idea of someone with a shaved head, even that meaning uh, butchy. Did people even sort of realize what your style suggested in the world? No. And and that in some ways was very liberating. Yeah. I mean, mostly people knew I was queer because because I had. Because they would tell each other that I right. was queer. I mean, it was a known fact, uh, and and I was I was I was very out because I felt like I could afford it. Uh, yeah. uh, so that was I think mean, it was about a decade when I was really the only publicly out person in the country. But yeah, I could wear whatever I wanted. It wasn't marked in any way. It made me unusual, but it wasn't uh, marked in the way that it would have been marked in this country. So it wasn't like. If you want to be a political reporter, you need to put on a suit and tie and and sort of affect a professional appearance. No, not at all. That was actually really fun because for a while there were no rules. Yeah. Then gradually they they began to to appear. Uh, although I think that to this day Russia is in some ways sort of less regimented in some of these signs. I think people pay a lot more attention to how expensive your clothes are hmm. than to whether you wear the uniform. Huh. So and and the system of American uniforms uh, really blows people's minds when they when they come here. Was there a community of of journalists that you were a part of in Russia during this period? There were a few communities of journalists that I was a part of because uh, because the thing is that you know, most foreigners would come and go. Right. And I stayed, so I stopped being a foreigner. So uh, I became aware at one point that um, that originally I was part of an expat community that included mostly journalists, but also other people doing other stuff. And then they all left, and my expat community didn't get renewed because my Russian community was getting renewed. Yeah. But I was no longer with the expats. And I just, like, one day I had the sudden realization that I didn't know a single foreign correspondent in the city anymore. 
you, you describe both sort of an era that was wild and open and an area an era where like homophobia had not been invented yet when did both of those things start to change in terms of your experience in Moscow um, well homophobia as an articulated position got invented about three years ago by the Kremlin it was a reaction to the protests they were looking for a way to discredit the protesters and queer baiting them turned out to be a really good good way of doing it. They tried several different ways. I mean, um, it's what Tim Snyder calls a calculated cacophony. They throw out a lot of things, and something sticks. And they're quite sensitive to, to noticing what sticks and what doesn't. Um, and, you know, I think queer baiting the protesters worked because, in part because homophobia hadn't been invented. So they invented it. They invented a way of speaking about LGBT people. And once they did, they owned the conversation. I mean, there was no language in which to even resist it. But also queers are a great stand-in for the West and for everything that went wrong after the Soviet Union collapsed and everything, everyone who is different and just a very good way of saying other. The scapegoating minorities always works that way. It's just a, it's a particularly handy minority. Right. He, they backed into this whole traditional values thing that really became the new national ideology. Is that something that you saw coming before it happened, or was that a shock to you? I so did not see that coming. I remember that when the New York Times asked me to start blogging about Russia in November of... 2012, actually. And they asked me for some ideas, and I said, well, you know, I would like to do weird stories like uh, this ban on homosexual propaganda that they're planning to pass in a small town outside of Moscow. That was a few months into the anti-gay campaign, and a few months before it became really visible on, 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 the, on the federal level. But I didn't know to take it seriously because I didn't watch television. Because at that point, television had been broadcast television had been controlled by the state for so many years that most sane people had turned it off. I would sometimes turn it on to see coverage of particular stories because I was still a journalist. But for the domestic audience, I was doing very little political journalism, journalism basically none. I was writing popular popular science stuff, and I was editing a popular science magazine. So I had no reason to, to, to be watching federal television. So I didn't realize that they were talking about, uh, you know, whether it was enough to protect their children by uh, banning homosexual propaganda, whether they needed to do something more. At what point did you think this is going to affect my my own life? So so th- yeah, so that conversation would have been in the fall of 2011, and then early 2012, they proposed the laws. Um, uh, against homosexual propaganda on the federal level. And I remember my third child had just been born. And we needed to get bigger cars because the strollers uh, couldn't fit into uh, our tiny little cars that we drove. So I remember coming home and saying, look, we have to make a decision. If they're going to pass this law against homosexual propaganda, are we staying or, or are we leaving? I don't because want to get stuck with this minivan. Exactly. That's exactly what I was saying. Yeah. You know, we don't want to get two new cars and like have to leave the country three months later. And my partner, you know, who was uh, lactating and oxytocin out of her brain, yeah. uh, was like, it's going to be fine. We're going to survive. This is not serious. This is ridiculous. We're just going to fight it. So we resolved to find it and fight it. We got two bigger cars. And then a year later, exactly a year later, it was very clear 
that not only was it serious, but it was um, they were going to go after us personally. So this was early 2013. There was a big article in the biggest daily tabloid that actually named me and uh, identif- identified me as bringing up an adopted child, uh, that's my oldest son, in a perverted family. And at the same time, they were talking about removing children from same-sex families. So it was a very clear message uh, and after, that, that was going to be targeted. After you had been a political reporter in, in, in Russia for a period of years, was this the first time that you were personally targeted by the media? Uh, no, I mean, I'd been very involved in the protests, and, and I'd, uh, I'd also, uh, I was the first journalist to be blacklisted by, by Putin's Kremlin. I'd, it had ebbed and, and, and flowed. I mean, I, yeah. it, I, I don't want to give the impression that I spent a dozen years uh, being a constant target of attack. There were, there were like years of lulls in there when I was editing glossy magazines and, and right. writing very little political stuff. But I had, a, I had an early experience with it in the summer of 2000 when I was getting death threats and uh, all sorts of other really unpleasant stuff and getting my apartment broken into. And then it happened again a few years later. And then there was, there was another series of incidents a few years later. And then this was like the worst that, 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 that happened was, was um, when I started getting named in the papers. And then there was a, a concerted attack on social networks um, by the pro-Kremlin youth movement, Nashi, and that's when I started getting hundreds of death threats. Um, but by that point, it wasn't the death threats that I was so concerned about, not because I'm cavalier, but just because there's a qualitative difference between getting a whole bunch of death threats from crazies on Twitter and, 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 and on email and getting a message through the federal media from the government saying, we're going to go after your kids. That was much more serious. If this had not happened, would you you would still be living there, you think? You know, on the one hand, I feel like saying, yeah, I would still be living there. On the other hand, so many people have left in the last couple of years. It sometimes feels like almost all the people who are sort of my reference points in thinking about Russia, probably 90% of them are outside the country having moved in the last couple of years. So that makes me think that if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. Mm. My people are leaving. Do you feel like as all of these people flow out of Russia, they will continue to have an influence on Russian politics and these laws? Or, or is that flow an effective move? It's definitely effective to get people out of the country. I mean, not that people can have an influence on politics and laws in the first place. I mean, it's a perfectly closed system. It doesn't respond to outside pressure at all. I mean, it will eventually implode, but that's the only way it's going to end. It's not. It's not going to end because of the uh, of the work that people are doing. So I think the bigger impact of of this um, outflow of people is just that uh, it, it degrades the country's population further. The people who would build a new, better Russia once the system imploded, they're leaving the country. Surely a few of them will come back, but a lot of them won't. I mean. Um, I don't really see myself going back again to to rebuild the country when Putinism is over. I'll I'll go back to report on it, but I, th- I think I'll keep my home base here. Do you intend to keep making that the the primary focus of your writing? Well, it's the next book will be about Russia, and, oh. then, and then we'll see. Can you tell me anything about it? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's about um, what's happened in the last three years with Putin inventing a, an ideology and and be- and setting into motion the mechanisms of totalitarianism. Is it going to be more difficult 
to write about Russia now that that anecdotal on the street sort of lived side is gone? Well, I still go back to report all the time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. I just, my family's here. Okay. I don't know that I'm going to be allowed to go, to keep going back and forth indefinitely, but so far it's been pretty smooth. So I've been I've been going for about a week every couple of months. Like, what do you do in that week there? Do you know what you're, you're coming to do each time? Feel the air, you know. Yeah take the temperature uh no i mean there are people i talk to and they're because i'm working on a new book there are people i actually formally interview for it but it's also seeing friends taking some notes on what it feels like and what people are talking about so you're going to do this this book and i mean i don't know how old is putin like uh putin 60? Is, uh he was born in 1952 so he's he'll be 63 this year i was going to say putin can't last forever but actually that Putin does seem like he he could, he's could go not long. that much older than I am, so you know I'm not counting on on it. How long will you continue to report on this sort of stage of Putinism um, before it it becomes a uh, I'm banging my head against the wall. I have to personally sort of move on from this topic. I mean, it must have worn you down to spend so long with Putin. Well, I moved on from him for a while, okay. and then I and then I went back to him, and then the second time I would have done, I thought I would do the Tsarnaev book, and it would be sort of my bridge to reporting on. American stuff. Yeah. And then before I was finished with it, I really wanted to to get back to write about Putin. I think there's value to having reporter on Russia for nearly 25 years. Yeah. I definitely remember stuff and sense stuff that younger reporters just either don't know or will take a long a lot longer to to get at once yeah. they start digging. And also, I'm, I'm still attached to it. I sort of want to finish watching this movie. <laughs> uh, I'm not at all excluding the possibility that I will get sick of it. Yeah. But it hasn't happened yet. For, for most of your career, activism has sort of been intertwined uh, with your writing. That's a position that it's not taught, one could say. Um, it's not part of the journalism curriculum in America. W- what would you say to someone who, who wants to pursue sort of both of those things in their own work? Well, a couple of things. One is I would say that when the great people who invented the idea of objectivity in journalism invented the idea of objectivity in journalism, they didn't mean uh, the silly things that are meant by it now. You know, they meant that a story has to be clearly sourced, that it has to be reproducible, that the basic idea is that if you went to all the same people that I went to and ask them all the same questions that I asked them, you'd get pretty much the same story as I did. Uh, so it's like a reproducible experiment. Mm-hmm. Being an activist doesn't get in the way of that. You have to be hyper aware of your relationship to the story in order to be able to represent it accurately. And you know, being an activist gets in the way of other things. I think that having strong personal relationships with people, both negative and positive, can get in the way of writing stories, not because you're not, quote-unquote, objective, but because you don't want to insult somebody or you have been so badly insulted by somebody that you can't see straight. Even on a, on a sort of uh, even less detailed level, I've certainly found myself in the middle of stories that I had a very difficult time telling because I couldn't get 
out of them. Mm. You know, I couldn't see them from from the outside in order to be able to, to tell them. So those are the pitfalls. The pitfalls aren't that, you know, it's it's corrupting to, to you. The pitfalls are just not being able to tell as great a story as you possibly could. How do you respond when someone says, you know, I'm covering this uh, law about homosexual propaganda in Russia? It's like, well, of course she thinks that. I mean, she's the only publicly known lesbian in all of Russia. Like, not how, anymore. How, like, how do you... Not anymore. The, she's the original public... Uh, <laughs> she's um, Russia's first lesbian. She's yes. Russia's first lesbian. I mean, like, when you're covering a story and someone says, well, hey, wait, you're an activist. W- what is your response to a subject there? You know, that hasn't happened to me in a long time. Oh. So I, I don't need to come up with a response to yeah. it. There's definitely a risk that it happens to younger people, happens to people who work more on the new side of things. Because, again, you know, in ma- at magazines it doesn't really happen. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't happen on the opinion pages for which I write. Mm-hmm. There is some validity to when it happens to news reporters. I mean, you should not be covering things that you're personally involved with as news just because the contortions you have to go through in order to be able to tell those stories in a transparent way are probably not worth the effort. Yeah. You know, cover something that happens next door. Yeah. That seems like a good place to stop, is Eddie. Thank you very much, uh, Masagasin. Uh, the book is The Brothers. It's Riverhead? It's Riverhead. Uh, it's out of Riverhead. We'll uh, link to it in the show notes, and we'll be back next week. That was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to my guest, Masha Gessen, who came in here on short notice and a busy schedule. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Rachel Mabe. Aaron. What? I have bad news for you. Rachel Mabe is no longer our intern? This is her last show. Thank you, Rachel Mabe, for your service. <laughs> Rachel has been a fantastic intern. She, is, yes. uh, she has worked uh, tirelessly on this show for many, many, many months. Yes. And uh, we really appreciate all of her time and effort. Yes. Thank you to her for doing uh, the show notes that many people have enjoyed. Uh, if you've clicked a link, uh, you have clicked a link that Rachel may have entered. Thank you, Rachel Mabe. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, Casper, Trunk Club, and of course, Tiny Letter. Give us a rating on iTunes. Send us an email, editors at longform.org. Let us know what you're thinking. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.